KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Standing by to join me is Ernest Gonzalez. He's Associate Professor and Director of the MSW Program in the Center for Health and Aging Innovation at NYU. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be with you. Did I miss anything or are you, are you doing additional work as well during the pandemic? Uh, you know, that is sufficient. I could go into all of the other projects that I'm currently working on, but let's just stick with that. Amazing. Well, I heard about you, as I mentioned, through the fellowship I'm in the midst of with the Age Boom Academy, and I love it. It's, as you know, with the Columbia School of Journalism. Yeah. And um, someone mentioned you, I believe it was uh, uh, Donna Butts from Generations United. And I looked at some of the things you're doing, and I thought, this is right up you know, my alley, what I'm interested in intergenerational strategies. But before we get into that, how did you become so passionate about what you do? Well, um, you know, I think it started at a very young age, my grandparents on my mother's side took care of me and my older brother. And um, every summer from pretty much the ages of six onward, to about 14, 15, until I moved in with them permanently thereafter. Um, it was a summer filled with adventure, filled with love. My parents were in Albuquerque and we were in El Paso. And um, coming from a very traditional Mexican family, I had at least four to five uncles at wow. one living under the same roof in a three bedroom house. And, uh, you know, so the notion of like family and multi generational household and living together and just challenging, you know, working through the challenges of life, it really started with my grandparents and at a really young age. And um, from there, I, I think it was because of them that I started to ask questions that were kind of sociological in nature, talking mm -hmm. about um, employment dynamics and relationships with the with the boss, if you will. Yeah. Talking about racism, sexism. Uh, these were conversations that were normal while doing grilling and barbecuing on the weekends with my uncles and my grandparents. So I think it was because of them that I became interested in what I currently study now. And in fact, I dedicated my dissertation to my grandparents because um, it. Yeah, it really was because of them that I knew what love felt like, and um, it was because of them that I could actually study. So uh, I owed them a great deal of debt. That is beautiful. Uh, yeah, they were great grandparents. You know, there's something so unique and so special. I call it the grandparent effect, where mm. that relationship is so different than with a parent. Yeah. So unique. It really is. And my grandparents were disciplinarians as well, but um, they left that to my parents. And I remember the first bike I ever got was from my grandmother and it was a dirt bike. And my brother and I just loved our bikes uh, in the Albuquerque desert. And um, yeah, it's a very different relationship. And, you know, I remember when I applied to the PhD, the first quote in the personal statement was um, respect your elders mm -hmm. and you know from a very young age my uncles were always correcting me with you know it has to be like si senor si senora it has to be this reverence and um, when my uncles were around there was definitely a hierarchical sort of like pay your respect 
But when they weren't, my grandparents were just friends, you know, they're friendly and loving and uh, yeah, it was really great. Yeah. Because you and I were talking, were you saying it at the age of two, that's when, you know, these minds- Yeah. So a lot of our, yeah, a lot of our stereotype formations occur very young ages. Um, in one area of research on gender, there's some pretty compelling research indicating that we have a very somewhat concrete dogmatic approach to what male and female, boy and girl is. And as we continue to age, um, our firmness tightens up, but then it becomes a lot more fluid and dynamic um, by the age of six. And by the age, by those ages, you know, we start to question why is it that boys only like certain color and, and girls and such. Um, and I think, you know, we don't have that level of sophisticated research in ageism and age, but um, I think it's compelling to, for us to at least think that at such a young age, we start to make assumptions of what people should be and shouldn't be doing. Um, just because of a socio-demographic characteristic. Right, yeah. It's, uh, it's been a really fascinating journey for me in the fellowship because I have learned how there's so much discrimination. Mm. And I didn't realize that college students, are, you know, I know they experience a tremendous amount of loneliness before the pandemic. Obviously now it's more, you know, intense. So there's loneliness, social isolation with college students, but then you have older adults and when you bring them together, it is that grandparent effect I was talking uh -huh. about, you know? Mm -hmm. It can be, you know, um, there's been so many inter intergenerational programs that I've evaluated that have been part of, um, and all of them share a similar characteristic where the moment you just step in the room, there is a different type of energy. It's an energy of, novelty, of excitement, of opportunity, of promise. And, um, and that's, it seems just to be a natural outcome to intergenerational programming when it's done really well. Mm. And um, so, yeah, it, that grandparenting effect, I think we just, um, as the only caveat that I would add is um, I've been trying to have intergenerational programmers um, problematize not just age, but also racism and perhaps sexism and ethnocentrism. And, you know, we've done a lot of research and interventions on overcoming ageism, and I really am a strong advocate for all of that. Um, but I think the 21st century is far more diverse than the previous centuries and the previous decades that we've lived in. And so as we're living longer, particularly the older demographic, the majority of them are white, but the younger generations are predominantly of color. Yeah. And how can you have a conversation and shape those conversations on not just ageism, but other forms of discrimination? And I think that's a, a really exciting area that we need to try to tackle in the 21st century. That is a, that's a really interesting point because different generations, different mindsets, different ways of looking at things, different lens. Um, I can see why that would have its challenges. Yeah, and I think there might actually be a common ground here. Um, 
the majority of younger folks have a stronger orientation to social justice. Yes. But we can't lose the fact that baby boomers were right there at the forefront of women's rights, of um, racial, ethnic minority inclusion, you know, and so I think there is an opportunity for different generations, even though they're different, to still find common ground on social justice. And um, I think this is the time to do it, if there's any. Yes. It's so ironic. I just did an interview with Kim Snyder, who produced this amazing film called Us Kids, uh -huh. featuring uh, some of the outstanding activists like uh, Emma Gonzalez, who now goes by X Gonzalez. Mm. And, um, it's outstanding. And we were talking about how, you know, she grew up in the 60s. They're, they're growing up in a different time, but there was a tremendous amount of respect and a bond between her as a filmmaker and a different way of communicating than if, if they were talking to parents. You know what I mean? Hmm. And there was, they could just really relate to one another because she, Kim, experienced similar things in the 60s. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Maybe just sharing those lived experiences of oppression and discrimination. You know, the younger generations, um, not to patronize, but you know, the younger generations are really hot to trot and have a discussion about microaggressions. But microaggressions before they were ever were ever a thing, we had major straight up segregation, you right. know, straight up discrimination within the workplace where you know, I remember my mom one time, she's a Mexican woman with a high school education. And when I was about seven and eight, um, she, my father became disabled. He was a truck driver. And my mom was then shot into the workforce. Now she will never call herself a feminist, but she was, she felt a sense of liberation in that she could contribute to society through her work. Okay. And um, as she was applying for jobs, I remember she came home one day rather demoralized and I asked how it, how it went. And she said, well, I, I went, you know, she was applying for a secretarial job and she went in and there was a white male who was interviewing her and he asked, you know, why she was wanting this job. And she told him and he reviewed her resume and essentially he said, well, ma'am, you know, don't you think that you should be at home taking care of your kids? Come on. <laughs> you know. What did he say? Yeah, well, she was stunned. She didn't even come. You know, she, she, she couldn't even respond to that. So she took her resume and she left. And it was just like, you know, she is trying to take care of her kids. She's trying to bring, you know, trying to get a job to bring bread and butter to the table. Yeah. Um, the but guilt factor. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's straight up, like in yeah. your sexes exactly you know, it's it's now it's so covert um but back then it was so overt and and people felt as though they could just get away with it yeah. so there's a lot for us to unpack on the different forms and experiences and perceptions of discrimination um so maybe that's an opportunity for us to build on for intergenerational programs i think so and as you as you've mentioned i think it really has to start early on in schools yeah, I mean, we adopted STEM and STEAM. I just feel like this has to be a conversation, whether you're talking about racism, sexism, ageism, early on in the curriculum. Yeah, 
it's such a hard nut to crack. And I do, I appreciate your passion for having a life stage, life course approach to undermining and ending ageism. Um, we just, I just launched a class at NYU called Ending Ageism. And I, saw that. I have a, a specific task is for my students to pick a life stage for the intervention. And a lot of interventions really kind of start in college, some in undergrad, very few early on. And I think the reason why is because we haven't fully assessed the stages at where kids are at. And how do you think about, you know, as opposed to gender and, you know, ethnicity, um, race, you know, especially race and ethnicity, those are rather static sort of characteristics to one's identity. I could I could imagine gender being dynamic and fluid. Definitely there's a continuum there. But age is also very much a continuum. And it's not as though we're one singular age our entire life. So how do you kind of speak about the this dynamic aspect of being human to a child about age? But anyway, I think it is a I think it's possible and we just have to meet the children where the children are at for the intervention. And it could be as simple as drawing together or reciting poetry together or sing together yeah. um, and measuring those outcomes. But I think it's totally possible. So in your course, do you have these students really thinking as entrepreneurs, like how they would come up with intergenerational strategies? You know, we are the School of Social Work, so more often than not, they're thinking about not-for-profit organizations that could create some programs. Mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely entrepreneurial in that sense, but without the profit dimension to it. I do bring back, and it's just a course that we launched. Um, I'd like to develop the course a little bit more so then there's a budget that's attached to it, simply because for profit doesn't mean that you could just exist on constantly getting grants. Um, that's been very challenging in the not-for-profit industry. So how do you kind of create an ongoing sustainable program through grants but other funding mechanisms to end one of the most pernicious and accepted forms of discrimination yet, which is ageism? Yeah. So I, I that's the direction I want to go in. That's wonderful. I mean, I actually looked at your website and I saw that, that you have that class. That's outstanding. And I want to expand it, you know, it's like, and in fact, I have an, I'm working with an undergrad right now who's pulling the literature on, okay, how have we overcome psychosocial prejudices on racism, on sexism, on ethnocentrism, on ageism. And, um, I want to distill it to a way that we could create just a working theory of not just overcoming ageism, but also racism simultaneously. Right now, the literature and the interventions have been very siloed. It's just one ism at a time. And I think given just the excitement and also the sophisticated, this is Jack. Hello. <laughs> Let me so um, slowly but surely, we're going to be creating <laughs> an inter intersectional approach to overcoming ism. I think that's so important. I, I also love to write. So I'm writing uh, 
screenplays. I've been writing short ones. And before the fellowship, I realized I love to write about uh, intergenerational themes. So you have this troubled teen and you have this older person and how they connect in comedy or dramedy. And and then I get the fellowship and I think, ah, this, this is so important. I'm so glad I took this path because we need to see this in TV and film. In yeah. The, you know? And be intentional about it. You know, I think intergenerational, multi-generational, it's a naturally occurring phenomenon. It's very easy just to get generations together. Yes. But how you bring them together to, you know, how do you elevate and make an ism salient so then that is kind of at in that's in their mind but not so much at the forefront that they're going to hold on to their pre-existing beliefs mm-hmm. and engage in that activity in which they're comfortable and after the activity they have an aha moment like um, i had an assumption that older adults could do x y and z and now i know that that assumption is like could only do xyz and now i have an assumption they could do much more than that yes Uh, so it's that intentionality i think in the programming that's really important i had a friend of mine who used to live in new york and he hosted um a a game show his name was sunny fox and he recently passed away he i think he lived to be about 95 and we Mm -hmm. became friends just over the phone i picked up the phone i wanted to ask about wonderama that he hosted years ago and we met for lunch, we remained friends, and he was always doing something. He was just amazing. He had such purpose and meaning in his life. And I find that what I'm seeing is when older adults and younger adults have purpose and meaning, it's that reason that gets them out, up out of bed in the morning and right. them, right? Yeah. It is. I, you know, I focus on productive aging, which is a, a much of the emphasis is on creating opportunities um, to work, to volunteer, and to caregive and across life, but specifically later in life. But there is um, a word of caution. You know, we live in a society that has very much values productivity. And, um, I'm just reminded of like thinking about the resources that are necessary to be productive. And, um, you know, as long as it, the individual feels as though there's a choice to be, to have that drive, then it, it's not that they're not forced to do something. Sure. Um, even if it's just like pure, you know, sort of like uh, peer pressure. Um, and just be cautious of like, I'm cautious of um, turning older adults into lemons, right? So you have a tremendous amount of resources and experience, but let's use it, you know, well, um, use it only if they want to. Yeah, and otherwise, like, go experience retirement and leisure if you're, if, if that is a choice. And if that yes, is there, he is that, a, sorry, did you say that's a boy cat? Yeah, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> this guy is so hungry. Now that we're working at home all the time, I think he too has gained weight. And uh, here's our voice. He'll just come down and have us love him. And then so cute. demanding some food pretty soon. Amazing. Well, I don't want to keep you so much longer, but where can people find out more about you and some of your research and what you do? Uh, 
at our website. Let me just pull it up. Um, let's see. It's nyuchai.org. Okay. And we post a lot of like our current studies on there. They're welcome to get in touch with me through that email that is listed. Um, and I'm certainly around, you know, for um, any guidance or support just to troubleshoot and brainstorm. Um, okay. I'm happy to do that as well. What is the aging incubator, by the way? That was launched, I believe, in 2017, 2018. Um, and it was really from our provost and our president who identified three cross-cutting themes for the university to focus on. Inequality, urban affairs, and aging were the three. And uh, the provost put some money behind it where she wanted to support researchers across disciplines to focus on one particular theme. And um, so we have a, that's the aging incubator where it's in social work and nursing and aging and architecture and business and sociology, you name it. And we have a couple of faculty across the university who every now and then come together and talk about what their research projects are. We mentor and support students from the undergrad all the way to the PhD and postdoc levels, um, all to focus on aging. And uh, so that's what the aging incubator is. It's to develop more knowledge on healthy, productive aging. Amazing. Yeah. I want to thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Janine, for sure, anytime. And best of luck with it all. Thank you.